this week my heart has been bursting full because of this passage before us. Uh, James 4, verses 13 to 17. I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 4. There's so much for us to see from this passage because uh, it is uh, uh, the Word of God. It is the living and active Word of God. Uh, There are two words that haunt the human soul to its very core. These two words are words that you don't see or hear very often, but when they come into your life, they demand your attention. These two words will cause you stress. They will alter your schedule. Um, And they'll cause you enough trouble that you'll certainly take them more seriously next time. Ultimately, if you ignore these two words, the problem will only get worse. I hope you don't have the pleasure or the pain of seeing these two words anytime soon. Check engine check engine. Maybe you've got the little orange engine icon that looks like a weird water faucet thing on your car, but you know the words just the same. Check engine. Uh, This little light induces in us a looming anxiety, a a sigh-inducing insecurity almost, because, well, there goes your Saturday morning and your boba budget for the next two weeks. We can go ahead and do a reverse altar call. If you have a check engine light tonight, if you leave in the next five minutes, we know why. You can go ahead and take care of that. Our passage tonight is, in a sense, a check engine light for the heart problem that is our selfish ambition. And we've been warned about this thoroughly by James throughout chapter 4 already. But here, James kicks it up even another notch. You see, this, this passage addresses something uh, very intensely personal for us. Uh, how we think about the future. How we plan. How we view ourselves and our lives. And it points to the deeply rooted problem in all of this, and that is our selfish ambition once again. And so God, via James, will help us turn over every unturned stone in our lives that is our pride, our boldness in how we think about life, our tendency to think that our success and our failures also are up to us. Maybe for some of you who are maybe a little bit less ambitious outwardly at least, it's just a middle class, modest assumption that the right amount of money uh, allocated to the right things and invested in the right ways is all you need. This is a selfish ambition that instead of feeding your pride, feeds your comfort and gives you a sense of false security that although you may not have a million dollar home by age 30, that you can solve any of life's problems. 
And so maybe your selfish ambition is a little more modest. But deep down at the core of whatever your exact line of thinking may be, the walls of the human heart are lined with selfish ambition, James says, in how we think about the future. There is an inherent independence, an autonomy, a desire to stand on one's own two feet at all times. Friends, we have a deeply rooted belief that the future is up to us. It's up to us. The great skeleton in the closet of Western Christianity is this compartmentalization of selfish ambition, a hall pass that you can surrender your life to Jesus except for your career ambitions and life plans because those, those are yours. Those, those are how you're going to provide for your family. Those, those serve your basic needs, but do they really? I think we read passages like this and write them off because we just think, okay, here it goes again. Here's the Bible telling me to just give up everything, give up my rights, give up on life, and just go live like a monk. Because this passage, this kind of passage is no fun, I admit it. But it's so needed. And it's so needed for a ministry like ours. Where you are forming your convictions and forming your career paths and making decisions that will affect the rest of your life. It's so needed because we should rather have this check engine light come on right now than for us to never be warned about the total engine failure coming ahead. Tonight, God's word will confront our pride, yet show us a path forward, a path surrendered, surrendered to God's will. So turn, if you haven't already, to James 4, verses 13 to 17, and we'll read our text now. James 4, starting in verse 13. James, by the Holy Spirit, writes, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Father, we come to your word and we see our need. But we know it will only be by your Spirit's work that we can find shame. And so you have given us your Son, and so how will you not also graciously give us all things, even this passage and the truth in it, all that we need for life and for godliness. And so grant us much grace, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight as we continue our 
exploration of selfish ambition here in James 4, uh, we'll see that true faith looks humbly to the future through the lens of God's will. True faith looks humbly to the future through the lens of God's will. We'll look at this in three parts, three steps to humbly submit our hearts to God's will. Three steps to humbly submit ourselves to God's will, our hearts to God's will. First, in verses 13 and 14, we see uh, acknowledge your presumptuous planning. Acknowledge your presumptuous planning. First, here in our text, we see James wants us very simply to stop and to examine our plan. To stop, to pause, and to look at our aspirations. To take a long, deep look at what our dreams are. We need to see if there is any presumptuous thinking in our planning. What are the false assumptions we might be making as we think about the future? Look again at verse 13. Come now, James says, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. James is addressing a particular group of people in these churches he's writing to. Perhaps a group of merchants in the congregation. People who travel regularly from town to town trading and making a profit. And I believe these merchants... So indicative of all of us, especially in this globalized world, uh, that indicative of all of us, uh, these people relate their plans out loud in this passage. Almost the rhetorical that we see in chapters 3 and 4. And these people express a sense of relative uncertainty in what they're saying. Today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and Maybe in other town, uh, you can imagine them saying. But in their relative uncertainty, we see throughout this passage, there is an absolute certainty in the fact that they know things are up to them. The future is in these people's hands. Now, is James condemning weather forecasts or 401ks or... Uh, life insurance, or A-team even? No. You see, James isn't saying not to plan. He's not saying throw out the notepad or delete your GCAL. Like He's not saying get rid of planning. James is saying the way that you plan, the, the certainty that you have as you think about where you'll be in a year, or in five years, or in ten years when you finally graduate med school, the confidence you have in yourself to make that happen, that is the problem. It's not the planning, it's the heart behind presumptuous planning. It's not so much here even what is said here in this verse 13. It's what's not said here that's problematic. You see, what is not said, what is not acknowledged, what is not considered here in verse 13 is God. The 
problem with this presumptuous planning is that it's a godless endeavor. It's a godless endeavor. Now, you don't have to be a college football fan to know what the Heisman Trophy is. Uh, You probably know what it is because you've seen it. You may not know that you've seen it. Uh, The Heisman Trophy is a trophy given every year to the most outstanding player in all of college football. The most outstanding player, not the most valuable player, because they're not paid. At least the ones we like to admit aren't paid. The most outstanding player gets the Heisman Trophy. And the Heisman Trophy is a sculpture of a player posed with his right foot forward. Do it with me, sitting down. Turned to his right with a football tucked under his left arm. And what? All the dudes in the room with his arm out. His arm outstretched uh, to fend off any would-be tacklers. This is what is called for the uninformed. The stiff arm. The stiff arm. Derrick Henry's signature move. It's a defensive position for an offensive player poised to fend off anyone getting in the way of a touchdown run. This is the picture of our verse 13 planning, our presumptuous thinking about how things should go as we look to the future. You see, it's a defensive position we take in our hearts, poised to fend off anyone, even God himself, if you're getting in the way of our plans, our goals, our ambitions. You see, as we consider our plans, our time frame for things, our profit margins, we stiff arm God. Our abilities, the statistical likelihoods, the housing market, the local eats, the financial implications on our budget are a higher priority more often than the God who determines all of these things and gives us all of these things. We are driven more by our emotions and our own heart's desires and our bucket lists, even our fears and our insecurities in our life decision-making rather than our consideration of God. It's a sad reality if we're willing to admit it. And that's what James is asking us to do, to acknowledge where we are being selfishly ambitious, presumptuous in our planning. And verse 14 shows us exactly how it is that we are being presumptuous. Look at verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Here in verse 14, there are two things that James points out that we presume upon. First, James points out that we presume upon the certainty of our future. We have an unwarranted confidence in what will happen tomorrow. We plan, we think, and we act as if we know with certainty what will happen to us tomorrow. As a fact, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. As a fact, we don't know exactly what tomorrow will bring. Even in the relative stability of UCLA life, 
You just think back to a couple quarters ago when there were some scares, uh, when COVID was going around. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. That's James' simple point. So don't presume on that, he's saying. You see, as humans, as created beings, there is a limit to our knowledge and our abilities. Now, I know we like to think that we know what's up with life. Uh, We find security and satisfaction in being planners and executors and setting out to do things and then getting them done in applying to things and getting into those things and also the second option and the third option just in case. It, It brings us joy, but the bottom line in all of this is you just don't know. You just don't know. It may be you're sitting there and you've not experienced that kind of disappointment yet. Well, it's going to come. It's going to come in a fallen world. And so James is saying that you are being presumptuous. You're assuming too much in your selfishly ambitious heart if you are so sure about your future. Secondly, also in verse 14, we see our presumption upon the safety and the security of our lives. You see, here we fail to acknowledge the fragility or the frailty of life. Look at the second half of verse 14. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James borrows or alludes to imagery found throughout all of Scripture of a mist or a fog that burns off with the morning light. Or other places, a smoke that is dispersed by the wind. This is imagery that depicts the brevity of life that we see in Ecclesiastes. All is vanity. Job 7.7 describes life as a breath. Or Psalm 39.5 says, Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Or Psalm 102, verse 3, For my days, the psalmist says, pass away like smoke. You see, life expectancy numbers should tell you your life is a a fourth over. It's a quarter done. And yet you, 20-year-old, you feel like a million bucks. Your whole future is ahead of you. You haven't even chosen your major yet. You should. And yet that is exactly the discrepancy James is pointing out. Your life is one quarter over. The life expectancy is 79.8 years in the United States. And your life is almost over, yet you don't feel like it. You're presuming upon the safety and security of your life. You see, whether your inability to know what tomorrow brings or your lack of understanding of the brevity of life These are aspects of life that are uncertainties, they're unknowables, they're contingencies that we treat in our presumption like facts. You see, with our lives, we construct our own Tower of Babel, and we know exactly how long it's going to take to build, we know exactly how long it's going to take to get up to the top, and we know how long we're going to get to enjoy the penthouse suite. We're so sure of it. And yet James says, as humans, we know nothing of the sort. To say we're sure is to presume upon God's knowledge and God's knowledge alone. 
You see, the irony is that while we know nothing about tomorrow, God knows all. And so while we live a life that is but a vapor, God is the eternal and faithful God. You see, when we presumptuously plan the future, we act like we are God, who does know tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that, and only he knows, and only he will be faithfully who he is every day all the way into eternity future. For some of you, James, James is the first person to tell you to check yourself. You've grown up all your life being told positive things. You can do this. Believe in yourself. Just study hard. Just work hard. Don't worry. We got your back. Mom and dad got your back. We'll pay for it if nothing else. Or surround yourself with people who will tell you yes, not tell you no. Or just save your money and eat your vegetables and you're going to be great. Don't worry. Yet James is being realistic here. He's saying no matter what you do, however savvy you are, however smart you are, however successful you are in your major, it does not matter if you do life apart from God. And so we must first acknowledge our presumptuous planning. Acknowledge your presumptuous planning. This is Proverbs 27.1. Do not boast about tomorrow. Do not boast about tomorrow. Grace on campus, we've got to be aware of our presumption and admit that we've got a problem. That's the first step. Acknowledge your presumptuous planning. Number two, we see in this passage that we must anchor ourselves on God's sovereign will. Anchor yourself on God's sovereign will. We see that in verse 15. You see, instead of the, the stiff arm, autonomous kind of attitude that we, see, we saw in verses 13 and 14, here in verse 15, we see how we ought to instead submit humbly to the will of God as we consider the future. How we need to anchor our hearts on God's will instead of floating freely however we want to on our own. Look at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Here James gives us the simple alternative to the presumptuous approach that we saw in the last few verses. It's not complicated. You see, true faith bows the knee before the sovereign will of God. James has already said this in chapter 4. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And then in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And here, at the end of the chapter, he is saying the exact same thing. If the Lord wills. What are we to say? If the Lord wills, first, we will live. You see, even life itself, even your next breath, rightfully should not be presumed upon here, James is saying. I think we know so well that God gives us spiritual life. He's made us alive in Christ. 
But so quickly we forget that God gives all of mankind life and breath. You see, we must recognize what Paul says in Acts 17 at Athens, that God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That in Him we live and move and have our being. And so James says we submit to the will of God. This is the truth that Daniel pointed out to King Belshazzar as he warned him of his pride of life to acknowledge God. And he says, in whose hand is your breath? So James says, we submit to the will of God. This is what Job sees throughout the book of Job. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 12, you have granted me life and steadfast love. Chapter 33, verse 4, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And so James says, we submit to the will of God. This is Psalm 139, this keen awareness that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. That he formed our inward parts. He knitted us together. And so James says we submit at this fact to the will of God. That if the Lord wills, we will live. You see, this submission to God starts in acknowledging that life and sustenance comes from him. It's why you pray before every meal. It's not because you need to bless the slice of dead cow on your plate in front of you. Uh, Because it's a natural, everyday point to pause and to acknowledge and to recognize that God provides Jehovah Jireh both the meal on the table and the very life that it sustains in you. If the Lord wills, we will live. The second half of the verse, James points out, it's not only by God's will or by God's power that you live, it's also the case for everything we do. Look at the second half of verse 15, that statement. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You see, if we will live, we will live by the will of God. And if we do this or that, it is also by the same will of God. His provision and His power Everything we do from life unto eternal life, it is if and as the Lord wills. You see, this isn't just that we have our own will and God has His, and then we run, through, run, run our will through God's and do what He allows us. This, in this text, is an active submission, a willingness to align our will with his to change our will where necessary his perfect will and a desire to weed out the things that we realize we must weed out you see in everything we endeavor to do whether it's your career or you choosing to date or even ministry we ought to submit in our hearts, to the Lord. This is Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. If you've been in the church any length of time, uh, you, like me, have had the pain of having friends, maybe family friends or 
um, friends who are families, who have little children who have gone through health trials. I've had a few in the past few years, even in crossroads who are like this. And in those raw moments, you see a family come to the realization that they go through this trial and spend uh, month after month in the hospital. That they are and their child is literally at the mercy of God every moment, every beep of the monitor, every breath. There's this bare bones sort of realization that it, it literally is God's will be done in every moment. If the Lord wills, the child will get better or If the Lord wills, the cancer will go into remission. Or if the Lord wills, uh, the surgery will be successful. And those moments bring so much clarity. There will be times, if not already in your life, where you will be forced in a similar way. Whether by health trial, or by humiliation, or by rejection, or failure, or by financial situation, that you will need to recognize that your very next step, and then everyone after that, must be if the Lord wills. You see, it is in those moments of clarity when this truth, this willingness to seek the will of God, makes so much sense. When you're in the hospital, when you've failed and you don't know where else to go, the logic is clear. It makes sense. I'm willing to submit. I'm ready to give up my will. I'm ready to follow God. But why does it take these moments of clarity in God's providence for us to see that? And at least in part, I believe firmly that it's God's providence in teaching us in those moments. Absolutely. Teaching us to trust Him. But passages like this show us, they tell us, it doesn't have to be that way, at least all the time. We don't have to learn by force. Because by God's grace tonight, he is showing us through his word. And so we ought to acknowledge our presumptuous planning and learn how to anchor our will to God's sovereign will. You see, when the skies are sunny and your health checks out, and you've got big plans to be places and do things and get that bread, the truths are still the same. It's in Him still that you live and you move and you have your being. And so if you are saved by Him, by grace through faith and the redeeming work of His Son, you ought to, day by day, drink from that same fountain of grace by bringing your plans and your dreams and your ambitions before the One who saved you and submitting them to Him. And then anchoring your will to His sovereign will. Number three in this passage, we see that we need to address our willful pride. Address our willful pride. Address your willful pride. Verses 16 and 17. Look there. James writes, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. 
You see, while in verse 15, James points out how we should respond, most of us, we're not there yet. We don't live in humble submission to God's will in the way that we should. And so he says, as it is, as you are right now, you boast in your arrogance. As you are right now, as you now think about your future, you are prideful, probably. You know where you're headed, and it's gotten to your head. And instead of repenting from this arrogance, these believers, at least, that James is writing to, they dig their toes in. But isn't that where we are sometimes, too? We make up our minds about how something should be. Uh, we make a call. We, we uh, m- make this big decision, this choice. And then there's that moment. There's that moment that you realize after you've spoken, after you've shared it with somebody, and it's official, that you realize you made the wrong call. You realize you're doing this selfishly. And yet we are, un- we are fundamentally unwilling in these moments sometimes to admit that we're wrong. We'd rather dig in. We'd rather defend our position or our decision than admit we took a wrong turn back there. We'd rather excuse and justify what we've got going on than stop and consider where we might have gone wrong. That somehow it might be better to take a U-turn than to keep going the wrong way but we dig in. See, James says this kind of boasting in our pride, this pride in our pride, defensiveness, James says it's sin. It's sin. James gives us the principle of this in verse 17. Look there again. So whoever does the right thing to do and and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. For him, it is sin. Now, this is often how we define sins of omission, right, in our gospel presentations. Uh, It's a nice little verse to tuck away and use. Absolutely. Every sin is one of two things. Something we do, we commit, even though God says we shouldn't. And then, this verse, something we don't do, even though God says that we should. James 4.17, right? Say it to someone on Bruin Walk. Well, here, though, in context, at least in principle, this is more than just a simple sin of omission, so to speak. You see, this is more than just not doing something we're supposed to do. This is knowing that God wants us to submit our wills, to submit our plans, to submit our future to Him, and making a purposeful decision not to do so. There is stubborn pride here that needs to be addressed. Even a denial of or a defiance to God's instruction here to submit. Humble yourselves uh, before God. There's even a coldness, a lack of receptivity to God in His Word here. In the court system, there's a concept called willful ignorance or willful blindness. It's a category, a provision meant to address those who deny culpability for a crime by claiming ignorance of something. 
something that they are clearly guilty of or that they should know from common logic or that you can see in their text messages or over their phone calls. This is a provision. It's a means by which the court can destroy the sort of I didn't know the gun was in my hand defense or I didn't know it was loaded even though it has my fingerprints on it. This is how the traffic courts can nail the green F-150 that's parked in the reserved for green vehicles section. Or how the person who thought the white substance was just sugar can get convicted willful ignorance. You see, in willful ignorance, there really actually is no ignorance of any kind. And James here is saying we are guilty of willful pride, willful arrogance. From what he's already said, we have no excuse. There is no actual ignorance of any kind. This is willful, intentional withholding of our submission to God. And so James calls us instead, by implication, to instead do the right thing. You know the right thing? Then do the right thing, he says. Humble yourselves before the Lord, the God who, who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We've seen these three steps, but I think it's helpful to look practically at what this looks like. Uh, what does it mean practically to acknowledge our presumptuous planning, to anchor ourselves on God's will, and to address our willful pride? I think is most things, we need to talk first about what it's not. We need to first talk about what solutions may seem like solutions, but are actually not. You see, we've seen the check engine light. It's bright orange. Now we need to find the right solutions. You see, we don't need more gas. Uh, we don't need more wiper fluid. Uh, we don't need more air in the tires. We need something for the engine. So first, let's look at the solutions that, that are not helpful here. Uh, this is not, this passage is not calling us to just act unsure of ourselves all the time. This passage isn't telling us to be insecure about what might happen tomorrow. Uh, this passage is not saying to constantly second-guess yourself or the future as if that is some sort of true humility. It's not what this is. You see, in fact, the very key to submitting to God's will is certainty. It's a kind of confidence. It involves the foundation of a steadfast surety, a confidence not in ourselves, uh, that we can make the future happen the way we want it to, but in the only sure thing that we have, salvation in Jesus Christ. Salvation that is signed and sealed and delivered by the Holy Spirit. And you see, as your insurance in your eternal future is to you ever more sure, your certainty about the short-term future here on this earth, and your strivings after that kind of certainty begins to fade away. It begins to pale in comparison. And you begin to live and do what you do carefully, 
and humbly and faithfully because you know you have one sure thing in Jesus and nothing else is guaranteed if the Lord wills. Another thing that this is not, this passage is not calling us to, to say if the Lord wills or Lord willing all the time as if it's some formula or an incantation of some kind or some magical phrase that you should start saying more in small groups to make people think that you're good with the Lord. Saying Lord willing or if the Lord wills in Latin, the common phrase throughout church history has been Deo Valente, does not in and of itself achieve anything. You should not think it fixes your image with other people. That if others hear you say it in some hollow way all the time, that it will help your cause. One commentator says it this way, more important than the mere verbalization of these words is an attitude of humility before God that becomes the fixed position of our hearts in all of our planning. You see, when your speech is laced with God willing, Lord willing, but your heart is raging against every thought, uh, against God's will, nobody's deceived. And God himself surely is not deceived. You see, this gets to the very heart of what James has said throughout this book, this epistle, that we must be doers of the word and not hearers only. We must show the mercy that we've been shown. We must not just give lip service to following Jesus. We must show that we are disciples by our love for others. And here, if we have true faith, we must not just say that we have true faith. We must show it by actually submitting our wills to God. This is show me, don't tell me sort of integrity. So we've looked at what this submission to God's will is not, but what is it? How do we get there? What are actual steps, practical things that we can do to address the check engine light here? First, it's point one. It's acknowledge. It's examination. it's, It's repentance even, where necessary, of where your will might not align with God's of where your will might even be antithetical to God's. In principle, this is at least in part a a radical rejection of all the world's value system, and instead a worshipful adoption of God's value and priorities. You see, it's a refusal of self-glorification and a determination to live for God's glory instead. You see, when you live in light of eternity, like James is calling us to here, you begin to take God and his priorities seriously. You start to live not simply for your own pursuits and pleasures, the successes and satisfactions of this life, but you instead begin to navigate and enjoy and prioritize rightly in view of, in context to eternity. And inevitably, there are things, there are goals, there are numbers that you begin to loosen your grip on. Instead of this tightly fisted plan that you have for your future, you begin to hold your career path and your 
finances and your future with an open hand and an open hand toward God. This is what this passage is calling us to, to acknowledge and then actually think through carefully and consider our values and priorities, whether they line up with the world's or with God's. Number two, what this looks like also is to seek God's will in His Word. To seek God's will in His Word. You see, in order to know God's will, you must know His Word. God's will for the Christian is not so much a future with exact contingencies all planned out. The will of God for the Christian more often, friends, is character and commitments that reflect Him. And as you do what it is that He has wired you to do and gifted you to do and given you a desire for, you reflect uh, that character and those commitments. And as you read, as you would see, especially in the New Testament, uh, you would see with increasing clarity that God's will is revealed and carried out primarily through the church. The very institution, the only institution He has promised in Christ to build. And so we want to be a part of that. And then we see with increasing clarity in the New Testament that the purpose of all of that, of that will of God, is the Great Commission that God's name would be known among the nations. Not my name or your name or anyone else's, but that God would be worshipped by every tribe, every tongue, and every nation to His glory. And so as we read God's Word and tune our hearts to His greater overarching will, anything and everything individual begins to head that same direction. And it begins to lend us tremendous wisdom and flexibility and hope in His promises. Number three, what this does mean, what, this, uh, what we would do to help ourselves in this would be to involve others. Involve others. Involve others who will help you see your blind spots. Who will help you to see your weaknesses. Who will be able to call you out on your sin. Who will be able to ask you the hard questions and tell it to you straight and call you out when you're being cocky. Get those people. Open yourself up. Share your heart on why you're doing what you're doing at the very core of what you're doing here at UCLA. Share your heart about that. Share your insecurities about that. Expose your own soul a little bit. You need to not only get these people, you need to actually, this is profound, it's not, but it is. You need to actually ask questions. You need to actually ask questions. Some of you got your people. Some of you meet with staffers all of the time. But you meet with older people, peers, staffers, and all you do is talk about yourself and you're sharing about yourself, but you ain't got no questions. You're so sure about what you're doing, you want to share about all the ways that God is teaching you and growing you and showing you. Amen and amen. But there should be things that you need 
wisdom off. You need perspective off. Uh, You need uh, more certainty that you are going in the right direction, obedient to God. You need to think on where you're at and what you don't know and what you might be missing and ask questions. I think there's others of you that have these people and maybe you even ask questions, but you ask so many people for this so-called wisdom that really you're not looking for counsel. You're not looking for input. You're just looking for affirmation. You're looking for the answer that you want to hear from somebody, just somebody. You're looking for the support that you want to have to do what was already in your heart. Now just be honest with yourself. Do you have those people? And are they actually helping you? Are they actually God's gracious instruments in your life to help you see where your presumptuous planning is is happening in your life. Lastly, and most importantly, most importantly, what this looks like is prayer. What this looks like is prayer. This is daily, overt, intentional submission we must get on our knees and both in concept and in reality pray the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught his disciples. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's true humility that seeks God's glory and God's glory alone. Pray. Pray yourself into submission to God's will. GOC, this passage, as we've seen, Uh, we see the plan to go city to city as this sort of presumptuous endeavor to accomplish one's own will. And some of you, even in the next few months, will be going to, indeed, other places, other cities, other churches, other, uh, your, your career. And for the Christian, the endeavor to go from city to city or job to job or one station in life to another ought to be not this presumptuous endeavor but a humble endeavor willfully willingly reliant on the strength and the direction of God desirous most of all to see his name praised and then grateful for whatever part you and I might have And so let's submit our wills to God, both individually and as a group.